Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. If you do not have a Bible, uh, if you were to look directly in front of you and slightly below, there is a black book in front of you in the pew back. That is a Bible. Uh, feel free to grab that. Flip over to page 832. And while you're at it, if you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to take that one. That's our gift to you. Uh, take it, don't just take it, but take it and read it. Those are God's words, and they are of priceless value. And, and so we give that to you. Um, but we are going to be in chapter 26, and we're going to begin reading in verse 31 in just a moment. Uh, if you are uh, looking and you need a little bit of help, guidance getting there, look for the big number 26, and then uh, look at the very, very small numbers and find verse 31, and you'll be golden. Before we get into that, I want to give you a little bit of wisdom on how, uh, what to maybe do if you're asking for volunteers for something. And so one of the bits of wisdom that I will give you is when you're asking someone to uh, volunteer to help you with something, don't tell them the absolute worst thing about you uh, that is specifically when it comes to whatever you're getting them to volunteer for. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Say I asked some of you to help me build a shed. Now, what I might do and to get you to volunteer is I might offer you pizza or a meal or something like that. What I should probably not do is tell you the story of when I was 18 helping a friend of mine build a shed, and I figured out that you can load nails into a nail gun the wrong way. And if you load those nails into a nail gun the wrong way, and you proceed to try and use that nail gun, you will accidentally shoot your friend in the finger, and you will shatter his finger. So, with that, who wants to come help me build a shed? That's what I thought. <laughs> that is not the story that you would tell if you were trying to get somebody to do something with you. In fact, when we are getting someone to, to help us, we don't, we don't start with the worst thing about us. But the strange thing about our text this morning is that is exactly what the disciples are doing. The disciples are sharing, Matthew is writing down for the whole world to see the disciples' absolute worst moments. And they're doing that not because they want someone to follow something they've made up. They're doing it because they want to tell the world the truth that it's not really about them, it's about Jesus. They're telling the absolute truth, even their worst moments, because they want people to see the faithful and obedient king, even when he was the only one being faithful and obedient. They wanted people to see Jesus honored and glorified as the king who willingly went to the cross to save sinners. They weren't interested in getting followers for themselves. They were interested in telling the truth of the gospel to the world. This is, one of, this is not the point for us today, but just one of the proofs that the gospel is true is the fact that stories like these that compare the, the faithfulness of Jesus to the absolute faithlessness of his disciples are true. If it were made up, this part wouldn't be included, but it is true, and it is included. Well, let's uh, read this text. I normally try and get you to stand when we do this. However, this is a longer passage, so you guys go ahead, sit, and uh, read along as I read. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, 
you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, My betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, Do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray together. Father God, give us ears this morning to hear these scriptures, this passage that is breathed out by you, inspired by your Holy Spirit. 
Father, give us wisdom from these pages for salvation. Increase our faith in your son, Jesus. And Father, we ask all of these things for your honor and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at this text this morning, there is one thing that if you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember this, that as we come to this text, as we uh, come to it and as we leave it, we need to be awestruck by King Jesus who obeyed the Father and endured every trial on the road to the cross. Let me say that again. We need to be awestruck by King Jesus who obeyed the Father and endured every trial on the road to the cross. Now the story breaks down uh, rather easily for us into three sections. In fact, it's the, if you're looking at the ESV, the three paragraphs we have there, those are our three sections. So first is Jesus the faithful friend in 31 through 35, then Jesus the sorrowful son in 36 through 46, and finally, Jesus, the committed king, in 47 through 56. Jesus, the faithful friend, the sorrowful son, and the committed king. Well, first, let's look at Jesus, the faithful friend. Verse 31 again says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What Jesus is offering for his disciples here is a, a warning, but it is a hope-filled warning. It is a warning that, that builds upon a bunch of other warnings that Jesus has been giving his disciples throughout the entirety of the book of Matthew. Over and over, he's warned them again that, that his ministry would end in his betrayal and arrest and death and resurrection. He's been warning, warning them of that uh, over and over again, and yet now he warns them and says, it's tonight. The hour is at hand. And not only is the hour now, but it, it is an hour that I will face on my own. You will all leave me and fall away from me. It is a warning to his disciples. It is, it is not a surprise to Jesus, though. And Jesus, as he looks at this, he sees this, and it is a fulfillment of the scriptures. He is quoting here when he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's quoting from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 7. And so that, that passage is interesting, and I think we, we might, if we were to go there and read that whole section, we would see how, yes, it is a warning to his disciples. This is a fulfillment of Scripture. Not only that, though wicked men may be involved, this is the will of God that this happens, but there's hope in this, even though the disciples are going to desert Jesus. Because if you go to Zechariah chapter 14 and you read that verse, but then you go down you will see that, that the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattering will end in a remnant of God's people being purified and refined as silver or gold. And because of that, they would be God's people and he would be their God. So Jesus is giving, he's giving a, a, a hope to his disciples even in the quote, but he goes on to give them even a more direct and blatant Hope, even in the midst of the warning, he says this, but after I am raised up, first of all, the resurrection is a foregone conclusion for Jesus. 
Whenever he predicts his death, he also predicts his resurrection. Now, obviously, the disciples, that doesn't compute for them because they don't really pay attention to that part. But for Jesus, he knows. It's not, it's not a question for him. It's not a if I am raised. It is when I am raised. And you see when he, he, the, the real hope of his statement to his disciples. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See, Jesus in this moment is assuring his disciples that though they will be faithless to him, he will not be faithless to them. And in fact, if we think what we see, the disciples, how the disciples respond to this in just a second as we look at that, it gets worse. We just read that. It gets worse throughout this passage. The disciples don't improve from the, the way they're about to put their foot in their mouth, but they, they get worse. And yet, even at the end of it, Jesus doesn't change his mind and say, well, I said I was going to go before you to Galilee, but you guys have really messed up, so I, I take that back. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He assures them he will go before them to Galilee. And if we were to just skip to the end, we would see Jesus commissions the faithless ones who left him, he commissions them to go and take the message of the gospel to the whole world. But not only that, he promises that he would be with them to the end of the age. Jesus was the, the faithful friend to his disciples. And yet, even as he says this and gives them a hope-filled warning, Peter begins to speak. And Peter says this, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. We have to give Peter credit for at least his brashness and his boldness. This is the same man who he confessed a few chapters ago, you are the Holy One of God. And now he's saying, Jesus, I don't know what you just said, but this is what is actually going to happen. Completely ignoring Jesus' statements and, and putting confidence in himself, even to the detriment of the rest of his disciples. And Jesus' response to him is scathing. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. When we, we look at this and we see what happens to Jesus, something that we need to, to take note of is that what Jesus is saying here about Peter is this. Peter, there's only one who's going to surpass you in wickedness and abandonment of me tonight. Judas is the only one who's going to do worse than him. Peter doesn't know it's Judas at this point. He's about to find out. But there's, there's no one else. Peter, you're going to take the silver medal when it comes to betraying and abandoning me. Your confidence is in yourself. You will deny me. But again, Peter responds with defiance. Even if I will have to die with you, I will not abandon you. Peter has in his mind him and Jesus going down in a blaze of glory, fighting to the death, but that is exactly not what Jesus is going to do. And you'll see that it is not only Peter that says this, but the, the last sentence of this first section is, all the disciples said the same. We, we all agree, Jesus, we are not going to leave you, but we need to look and see where the confidence of the disciples is 
for Peter and the disciples, the confidence that they have, the assurance that they have that they will stay faithful to Jesus lies completely in themselves. They think they have it within themselves to remain faithful to Jesus despite whatever suffering and trials comes their way. And so the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, where is our hope to remain faithful to Christ? Are we, as Paul warned the Galatians, are we people who, having been begun by the Spirit, are being perfected by our own flesh? What we need to remember is what Paul tells the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except... No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Where there is the ability for God's people to remain faithful to him. It is not in our own ability. Remember, it is God who is faithful, and it is God who will not allow any of us to be tempted beyond our ability. So, brother, sister, if you're struggling this morning with following after Jesus, with remaining faithful to him in the midst of this dark and troubled world, amidst all the pressures and temptations that are around you, then turn and look to Jesus because it is his faithfulness to you, not your faithfulness to him, that will keep you his. And brother, sister, if you are here and you think that you're going to be able to make it on your own without Jesus, if you're standing with the disciples and you're saying, I've got this, I can do this in my own strength, repent of that. Repent of that. I'm not 100% sure what's going on with the disciples, whether they had a way of escape here or not, or because the decree of God was there that they had any way of escape, any way of staying with Jesus or not, but they failed. They put their confidence in their own flesh, and they failed. At the end of our our first section here, it says, all the disciples said the same, we will not deny you. But at the very end of our passage, it says, then all the disciples left him and fled. Brother, sister, put your confidence in Christ and not in your own ability to follow him. Well, Jesus is the faithful friend to his faithless disciples, but Jesus is also the sorrowful son. Look again at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Before we even get into talking about this section, we just need to pause and realize that there is a gravity and a weight in these verses that we may never be able to fully and completely comprehend what's What's going on? In fact, in fact, the weight of these uh, passages is so much that, that Charles Spurgeon, a, a British pastor in the 1800s, says this, No man 
can rightly expound a passage such as this. It is, subject, it is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation, more than for human language. May the Holy Spirit graciously reveal to us all that we can be permitted to see of the king beneath the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think one of the songs we sing here as well helps us to see the weight of what is happening in the garden when it says, How in that garden he persisted, I may never fully know the fearful weight of true obedience. It was held by him alone. And so as we, as we look at this and as we think about this passage, I, I'm even reminded about if you went back to Genesis chapter 22, and in Genesis 22, Abraham uh, has been given a son, Isaac, and, and the Lord tells him, go and take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him on a mountain in the land of Moriah. And as we, uh, that, that narrative, as we go through, we see that, that Isaac, Isaac listens, uh, he, he sees what's going on, but he, he doesn't really understand, and he says, Father, the, I see the wood, and here's the fire, but where's the, the sacrifice? And, and Abraham says, the Lord will provide the the lamb the sacrifice and it ends up that even as Abraham's knife is raised that a lamb is provided well Isaac didn't know what was going on but Jesus in this moment is being led by the father to the mount of Golgotha where he will be crucified he is fully aware of what is happening and he knows that when it comes time for the knife to fall, there will be no other lamb, there will be no other sacrifice, no one else will step in the gap because he is the lamb. There is no other substitute to come in. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So when the knife falls, he will take the knife and be sacrificed. And so as we think about Jesus' suffering here in the garden, and as we, we struggle to comprehend and even to, to, to see what we see here, I think, I think there's just a couple observations we can make. And the first is Jesus' posture in his suffering. And look at, at what it says that he, he is he's sorrowful, but he goes and he prays before the Lord, falling on his face. Not, not the way we normally see Jesus praying in the book of Matthew with eyes lifted to heaven. This is bowing in anguish before the Father. And remember, he calls him Father, acknowledging his submission to the Father, but acknowledging his relationship with the Father. And lastly, Jesus says, your will be done, not mine. And so that's Jesus' posture in his suffering. But we also need to acknowledge there is a uniqueness of Jesus' suffering that he's about to endure and that he's enduring here in the garden. We might be tempted to think that Jesus is just looking forward to the, to the agony of what he will go through, the physical agony. And we must confess that what he goes through is one of the worst physical deaths that can be suffered by a human being. He will be scourged. He will be crucified. But that's not why Jesus is in this moment of distress. And, and one way we can know that is just by looking at church history. Looking at church history and knowing that there have been Christians who have undergone the exact same physical death as Christ, and yet they, they went to it firm. They may have not been looking forward to it, but they went to it 
knowing that they were, they were following God's will and they were, they were doing well. Jesus here is in agony and he is struggling. It is a unique time. This is, and, and one of the reasons we can know that is we can, if we look back at the book of Matthew, we know God has frequently, the voice of God has been heard by others in the voice, in, in his voice, declaring to others, this is my beloved son. That happened at his baptism and his transfiguration. And yet, soon, Jesus will cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' agony has to do with that relationship, with what is about to happen. And I think the, clue, the final clue we can get is to look at the, the purpose of Jesus in his suffering. Just look at Jesus' prayer. Jesus says, it, my father, in verse 30, my father, if it be, po- not verse 30, verse 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then again, as he, he prays again down in verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, Jesus is, is not talking about gross medicine that he has to take. What he's referencing is actually an Old Testament concept of the wrath of God being, being a cup of God's wrath. Psalm 75.8 actually explains it to us uh, really, really clearly when it says, for, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Here's the truth. God is holy. God is completely just and righteous. And God will punish sin. And he will punish sin with all of his just and righteous wrath. And that cup of wrath is exactly what the Father is handing to the Son. in a way that we cannot fully understand. The exact measure of God's wrath against all sin, hell's worth of eternities of sin, were about to fall on the spotless lamb at the cross. Again, we cannot fully understand how all that works, but the scriptures help us to see what is happening. 2 Corinthians 5.12, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The passage that Robert read for us earlier, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus knows that though he has never sinned, that he is completely righteous. He is about to suffer the wrath of God, the full weight of the wrath of God against our sin. And Jesus in that moment desperately pleads out to the Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way other than for me to suffer your wrath and to have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after three moments of prayer, we can see the answer is no. 
There is no other way. There's no other way because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. All the the sacrificial system that, that Israel had was just pointing forward to this moment where Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, would take away the sins of the world. And we see that as as Jesus, as he goes to prayer three times, and as he rises again, that he rises. He has heard the no, and he goes forward. It says, and then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Ought we to be thankful that even though Jesus heard the word no, that he didn't respond to the word no when we get responded to no in our prayers. He didn't begrudgingly go and continue on the road to the cross. No, he stood up with authority and with confidence and determination to go to the cross. Well, as we just look at this point, there are there are a lot of ways that we can dig into this passage. There are a lot of things we, are, we can take home. I'm actually going to give you some homework because I, I think that there are a ton of things that we can learn. Specifically, I think there are questions we can ask and answer from this text. How ought we fight temptation? I think we could ask, are we asleep when we ought to be keeping watch and when we ought to be praying? I think we could ask ourselves, how does Jesus show us how to deal with agony and depression in our soul? I think we could ask, and res- ask ourselves, how do we respond when our most desperate prayers get the answer, no? That's your guy's homework. Because I, and I'm going to credit an unnamed pastor who has a link on the Gospel Coalition to like a 30-second clip for helping us not be here for another hour. Because he just helped me to focus in on, on what, what we need to see here, and that's this. We need to see the horror of our sin and the wonder at Jesus' love for us. We need to realize that that cup that Jesus was agonizing over, that's my cup. That's your cup. That's what we deserve for being sinners against a holy and righteous God. What you and I deserve is what gave Jesus that agony in the garden. It is our sin that drove him onto his face and to plead with the Father, is there any other way? That is what you and I deserve for our sin. And so when we see Jesus get up and when we see him go and prepare the disciples and face what he's about to face, we ought to do what the song says. We ought to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned and unclean. He took our sins and our sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore our burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. We ought to rejoice that Jesus, though he was under some trials and temptations that we can't even imagine, he stands up with authority and faces what God has planned for him without any hesitation. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be in wonder and worship Jesus because of this. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, friend, I'm going to ask you this. 
why would you drink the full measure of God's wrath against your sin when someone else has already drank it for you? Why would you not be set free from the power of sin and death when Jesus has made the way for you to be set free from it? Friend, if you're here and you haven't trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will, when you die, you will go before the Father and you will have to suffer his full wrath against your sin for all of eternity in a place called hell. Why would you do that? Why would you not put your trust in the one who took that, that awful, horrific cup of the wrath of God and drank it empty for you? Don't leave here this morning thinking that you'll somehow make it and God will somehow approve you without you having responded in faith and repentance to his son. And know that he loved you so much that he did do that for you. Friend, repent, turn away from your sin. Look to Jesus and to him alone to save you. He won't cast you out. He won't turn you away. It isn't too late. If you're still breathing, you still have the opportunity to respond. You haven't sinned too much. There is no one who will not come to Jesus with faith and repentance that he will cast away. Why would you drink the cup of God's wrath against your sin? Don't do it. Trust in Jesus. Well, our last point for this morning is Jesus, the committed king. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, we might be tempted to think as we see this, if we're, just, if we're watching a movie of this scene, we would see probably a big crowd, torches, swords, armor, all this kind of thing, and then we would see a small band of raggedy people. And in our earthly minds, we would think that the power in that situation is with that large mob and that large band. But I want you to see as we go through this where the real power and authority lies. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him. If you're just wondering why in the world that, it was dark. They didn't have Instagram or anything like that. They would have had no idea who Jesus was, especially in the dark. They needed someone to show them who it was. And so that is why Jesus, uh, that is why Judas does that. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Though Judas is the one betraying him, Jesus is the one who authorizes the betrayal. And then they came up and, and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And, and again, it may begin to look here like, like Jesus is not the one in control. But, and maybe even, even his disciples see that. And they're not seeing with eyes of faith. All they're seeing is their, their, their rabbi being seized. And so we, Matthew doesn't tell us, but John tells us is Peter takes out his sword and he strikes the servant of the high priest. And what Jesus doesn't commend him. What does he say? Put your sword away. Put your sword away. Why, why would you do this? All, all it takes is one word from me. And there are 12 legions of angels. I don't, I don't need you to do this. This is what is happening now is a fulfillment of Scripture. 
I am in control of what is happening here. You do not need to defend me. Jesus is the committed king who is in complete control and authority of this situation. But Jesus also acknowledges here both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in these last few verses. He calls out the injustice of what they're doing. Have you not come out as against a robber? Jesus is sinless with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day, I, saw, I sat in the temple preaching and you did not seize me. You and your mob and your crowd, you had every opportunity to take me in front of all the people, but you can't do that because what you're doing is wrong and you know it. The fact that you're coming to me at night, the fact that you needed a betrayer to find a private place to do it, this is evidence that you are wicked and what you are doing is wicked. They are fully responsible for their actions against the Savior of the world at this point, but Jesus says again, as he said multiple times in this passage already, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. What Jesus is allowing to happen has been planned from before the beginning, the foundation of the world until now. God is completely sovereign in what is happening. And Jesus is in full and complete control of the situation. Jesus is, in this moment, he's not a, a Captain America hero like Peter wants him to be. He's going to fight till the very, very end. No, Jesus is a completely different kind of hero who, though he has every ability to stop everything that's happening, is submitting to the will of the Father and willingly allowing himself to be captured and taken all the way to the cross. I think C.S. Lewis gave us a great picture of what is happening here in the Chronicles of Narnia. A huge, powerful lion bound and humiliated by a frail witch. The lion is only bound. The lion is only humiliated and the lion is only killed because that is exactly where the lion wants to be. So what, what do we do with this? Well, how do, what do we do when we see Jesus committed, the king committed to taking his father's will all the way to the cross? I think there's only thing, one thing we can do and that's worship and adore the king. And so I'm going to close this morning by reading Revelation chapter 5, which says this, then I saw in the right hand of him, right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty, mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. Let's pray.